Thank you for listening to the Hope Church Podcast. We hope that this message inspires you and encourages you in your walk with Jesus. For more information and resources, visit hopeboon.com. Man, oh man. Oh, praise God. What a wonderful morning that we have this morning. Isn't this fun? Amen. About lost it when my when Abigail started singing this morning. Good Lord. Oh, goodness me. Well, if you're here with us for the very first time to Hope Kids, or to Hope Kids, to Hope Church, we want to welcome you. We want to say thank you for being with us today. It's just a privilege and a joy to have you in the house this morning. Thanks for being part of our family today, if you're here for the first time. If you'd like to connect with what's happening, we invite you to fill out one of our green Connect cards and drop it in one of the offering uh, black offering boxes on your way out so that we can keep in touch with you. You'll become a part of our email list, uh, which I think Isaac mentioned goes out every Monday morning, and you can keep in touch with what we're doing. Um, did you like that video? That video was great, wasn't it? I really enjoy that one of the twins, because I still can't tell them apart, uh, said that she was that she appreciated the team building activities. I thought that was really excellent. That's a very entrepreneurial thing to say. So you should be very proud, Mark and Reese. <laughs> that is awesome. Um, I'd like to continue in our series this morning that I began several weeks ago, called Power from Above. Uh, This will be part three, and I'll be concluding this series, not next week because we'll be at the park baptizing, but the following week I'll be concluding this series. Um, And it has been for me an incredible joy to preach and teach on the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, today I want to really challenge you. I want to pick up where I left off, and um, I think it's going to be really really encouraging. Are you guys ready to receive God's word this morning? Amen. I want to make a quick correction to something that I said last week, because I think that's a good thing to do when you make a mistake as a preacher, is to call yourself out and correct it so that people don't have bad theology. Last week, I mentioned the angel speaking to Mary before the birth of Christ about how Jesus would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Do you remember, who remembers me talking about God with us? So I misquoted that. It was actually Joseph that the angel appeared to. It was, in, it was in the dream that he had about the coming of Jesus. And so I said that it was Mary, and I was wrong. It was Joseph. So now that we've gotten that straight, I don't need to get any text messages or anything like that. And we actually have a very gracious congregation, so I don't actually ever get text messages about bad theology. But just in case one of y'all was getting ready to push send... I want you to turn this morning to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. While you're turning, if we could make our weekly declaration that we like to make around here. You can see it up on the screen, and if you're watching by way of stream, you'll see it on your screen as well. Let's declare this over our lives this morning together. Thank you, Father, that today... The eyes of my heart see you. The ears of my heart hear you. My heart and mind perceive and understand your word and your will. Today I am growing.
in the things of God. We believe that we're growing in the things of God. Amen. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. And I'm going to read down through verse 6. Today I'm reading in the New American Standard Version, which I don't often do, but New American Standard really nails this story. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. And it says, Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get this, these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, and Judas and Simon? I'm glad my name's not Joseph this morning. Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief, and he was going around the villages teaching. I'm going to talk to you today about the power of God, and we're going to look at it specifically through the understanding of what is it that stops the power of God from flowing. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you this morning that the Bible declares the entrance of your word gives light. God, today I thank you that the light of your word comes in to our hearts, it penetrates to the deepest places. And it brings revelation and insight. It brings truth. It brings correction. It brings wisdom and understanding. I thank you that as we peer into your word this morning, that we are made strong from the inside out. That if there be any places within our hearts that need adjustment or need correction, we trust today that your word will bring everything that we need. So we come to the table as it were hungry and ready to receive from you this morning. Pour out your very best for us, Jesus. We'll be careful to give you the glory in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen, amen. Verse 5 says that he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. I don't know how you read and interpret Scripture because I think everybody's lens is slightly different based on their experience, based on where they come from, based on what they're conditioned to believe over time. But when I read this verse, I find it to be staggering. When I read that Jesus could do no miracles, it sends me for a loop it challenges my theology. It challenges a whole lot within me. He could do no miracle, verse 5 said. What do you mean he could do no miracle? This is not an everyday average he that we're talking about. What do you mean he could do no mighty work? 
King James and the old King James uh, and, and the new King James both say he could do no mighty work there among them. What in the world? This is not an average everyday he that could do no mighty work. If this was written about me and it said, Pastor Josh went to his hometown of Niagara Falls, New York, and he could do no mighty work there, people would be like, bummer. Guess he had a rough week. Did, you know, just didn't have it that weekend, I guess. Must not have got enough sleep. But this is not you and this is not me that this verse is talking about. This is Jesus Christ. God in the flesh. This is the man upon whom the Holy Spirit descended in the bodily form of a dove that rested upon him. And immediately he came out of the wilderness one chapter later in the power of the Holy Spirit. He began his ministry. This is the guy who walks on water. This is the one who raises the dead. This is the one who causes blind eyes to be opened. This is the one who takes fish and bread, and feeds 5,000 plus people by the power of the Holy Ghost. What do you mean he could do no mighty work? This verse is staggering. How is it that the ministry of Jesus is rendered momentarily ineffective? I want to take you on a journey this morning through this passage. How is it that Jesus himself had a moment in time where his power was rendered ineffective, where he actually couldn't do what he wanted to do in his hometown? Let's make it personal since we're talking about the power of the Holy Spirit and this is a series called Power from Above. Let's make it personal for a second. Have you ever asked yourself the question, why does the Holy Spirit's power seem to work for other people and not for me? What is the kink in the hose? How is it that the power of the Holy Spirit may be so mightily on display in one person's life, in one minister's life, and in that, in that evangelist that I saw on TV where the wheelchairs are just being thrown away because people are getting healed. Why is that happening there and not in my living room? What stops the power? Last week as I was winding down our sermon, I told you, that today would be challenging. You may remember me saying that. My wife and I had a conversation about it because I was being a little too harsh, according to her. I said, I'm coming for you this week. I'm coming for your flesh because I, I actually like when my flesh gets uncomfortable because it usually means that if I respond properly, I'll grow. Amen. How many of you figured that out? When your flesh gets put in uncomfortable situations, if you respond the right way, you'll actually grow. If you respond the wrong way, you'll diminish. So today is going to be one of those, maybe our flesh gets a little bit offended. Maybe our flesh gets a little squirrely. But I think by the time we get to the end, you'll, you'll appreciate what we're going to cover. 
What stops the power of God? We talked in the previous weeks about how the power of God is a subsequent experience that the apostles and the disciples received in the early church when the Holy Spirit came in the book of Acts. They received this power from on high. Remember, Jesus said you should be clothed in it. You should sink into it the way you sink into comfy clothing. Last week, I talked to you about why the gospel is absolutely essential, or excuse me, why the power of God is absolutely essential in the preaching and the declaration and the proclamation of the gospel. According to Paul, a gospel without power is no gospel at all. So what stops the power? Well, the easy answer from this passage is unbelief. See it at the very end. You know, you and I, we get the benefit. We get the benefit of reading the whole text. And so we get to just look and be like, oh, I know the answer is unbelief. I read verse 6 already, so I know. These guys that were in that situation, they didn't know. They couldn't identify. Could you imagine being Peter or James or John? You get, to, you get to Nazareth and you're like, we're back in the hometown. We're back. This is our stomping grounds. Jesus is sure to be welcomed. We've been out on the road, traveling around Galilee, raising the dead, healing the sick. Go, Jesus. We've been having us a ministry tour. Now we're back in our hometown. Oh, it's going to be a hero's welcome. Imagine being Peter when Jesus starts to minister in the synagogue and all of a sudden the people seize up and Jesus can't seem to get anything done. Must have, must have messed with them, don't you think? The easy answer as to what stops the power of God from flowing in our lives is unbelief. But if you read this story carefully enough, you'll see that there's actually a progression because here's the challenge. Unbelief never starts out as unbelief. It doesn't. There's so many different stories I could take you to throughout the Bible that validate that reality. Unbelief doesn't start out as unbelief. A lot of times it starts out as a question. A lot of times it starts out as, as doubt. But, but, but rest assured that when the seed is planted, the enemy is going to be there to nurture along within your heart, within your mind, within your flesh, so that he can get you to the place where unbelief sets in and now you refuse to believe in God. You see, doubt and unbelief, we often use these words interchangeably. They're actually very different. You remember Thomas the doubter? Poor guy is going to go down in history for being called the doubter. Not a whole lot of people know that Thomas, after the resurrection, went and turned the world upside down in what is now the nation of India. Thomas was hugely impactful in the gospel. So when I get to heaven and I meet him, I won't be calling him the doubter. You can call him whatever you want, but... Doubt and unbelief are two different things. Doubt is a question. Unbelief is a decision not to believe. And unbelief never starts out as unbelief. In this passage, unbelief started out as something completely under, uh, unexpected. In this passage, unbelief started out as astonishment. 
See, I understand when unbelief is the result of doubt and of questioning, but what happens? What about when unbelief starts out as wonder and amazement? How did we get from here to here? We're talking about the power of the Holy Spirit. We're talking about power from above in your life, and I want to help you today to identify a potential blockage of God's power from working within you. It's unbelief, but, but it didn't start as unbelief. It started as amazement. And somehow we got from here over to here. Let's look at it. Verse 2 says, When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished. saying, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him and such miracles as these performed by his hands? When he began to teach in the synagogue, many listeners were astonished. This is the New King James says, many who heard him were amazed. How did this crowd go from being amazed and impressed by Jesus to not believing him, to putting the brakes on in their heart? The word astonished here in the Greek, is, it comes from two different Greek, Greek words that are compounded together. The first one means to strike. And the second word, ek, means out. It literally means to strike out. They saw the power of God on Jesus' ministry and they were, it knocked them out. They got struck out of their comfort zone. They got struck out of their place of routine. They, they were going to, to the to synagogue on the Sabbath. They were going to the temple to be taught. And they expected a status quo, business as usual, Shabbat service. But this time there was a different rabbi at the pulpit. And he was preaching and teaching some kind of wisdom that they had never heard before. And he was demonstrating and backing up that wisdom with some manifestations of power. And it so struck them, it knocked them way out of their comfort zone. They saw the power and it blew them away. I remember hearing the story of a, of a turn-of-the-century evangelist by the name of Smith Wigglesworth. You may have heard that name before. He was a powerful guy. He used to say things like, I never pray for more than 30 minutes, but I never go more than 30 minutes without praying. He was the kind of guy that was absolutely, utterly, and completely committed and sold out to the cause of Jesus. And everywhere he went, he preached. He got people saved, healed, and delivered by the thousands. The historians of his life argue whether it was 20 or 21 people that he raised from the dead. I'd say one's enough. I remember hearing a story of Wigglesworth visiting a person's home. He was preaching at their church in their location, and he was staying in their home, as used to happen a lot 
for traveling ministers. They would stay in the pastor's home or they would stay in the home of someone else in the church. Now we have the Marriott and Starbucks and we don't need that kind of thing anymore apparently. So he was sitting at dinner with these folks and the gentleman, the couple that he was staying with was a gentleman who had been in the war and was a double amputee from the knees down. And he sat at their table as they finished dinner he would often pray before and after the meal. And so you got Wigglesworth in your house. What do you do? You just let him pray, right? And he, he would pray at the end of the meal, and so he prayed, and upon the conclusion of his prayer, he said to this gentleman tomorrow morning, go and buy yourself some shoes. What a ridiculous thing to ask a double amputee. Tomorrow morning, go buy some shoes. The gentleman, knowing that Smith Wigglesworth was a man who heard from God, decided the next morning to go buy some shoes. He went into the, to the cobbler's place of business. He went into the shoe store. He asked for the size shoes, size, size nine and a half, ten, whatever it was, black. The man looked at him funny. The, the cobbler looked at him funny and, and was like, are you, are you, is this a joke? He assured him it was not, and the man brought him the pair of shoes. He sat down into the chair, took the shoes out, laid them at his, at his stumps, put his right stump into the shoe, and a foot grew. Put his left stump into a shoe, and a foot grew. And the man left with feet I don't know about you, but I hear a story like that and it knocks me out of place. I hear a story like that and it knocks me out. You see, when you truly see the power of God on display, I can promise you, my brother, my sister, when you truly see God's power on display, it will knock you so far out of the four walls of the comfort that you have built up for yourself and it will cause you to have to make some decisions about what you believe. I think this is one of the reasons that people struggle to embrace the supernatural side of the Holy Spirit and of his power. Sometimes we don't know what to do with what we see, especially if it messes with my theology, especially if it doesn't fit my comfort, especially if it doesn't fit the status quo. Just ask Abraham and Sarah. Just ask Gideon. Just ask Joshua. Just ask John the Baptist's father, Zechariah. Just ask Paul the Apostle. He was on his way to Damascus to kill Christians, and Jesus himself appeared to the Apostle Paul, knocked him flat on his back. What do you do with that? I'll tell you exactly what you do with it. You do what he did. He went into the desert of Arabia for two years and figured and sorted out what he believed. The people's response to the power of God in this story is what seals their fate. You see, oftentimes God's power comes and it starts as amazement and then when we don't know how to categorize it, when God moves in ways we didn't expect him to move, it, it, it gives us, it puts us at a fork in the road where we now have to decide are we gonna trust in him, are we gonna believe him or are we gonna get offended? 
You see, they didn't, they didn't just jump straight to unbelief in this scripture. We get, again, we have the benefit of reading the end of the chapter, or the end of the passage. We see, well, duh, they didn't believe in Jesus as though it was that simple. But they didn't jump straight to unbelief. In fact, unbelief is never that flagrant. It always starts out as something else. And it's always spoon-fed and nurtured by the enemy to help you to get to full-on, I refuse to believe in Jesus. Look at verse 3. You see the subtlety. Verse 3 says, Is this not the carpenter? Son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon are not his sisters here with us, and they took offense at him. They started out just amazed, bewildered by his power, and when they sought for an explanation, they took the road of offense. The New Living Translation says it this way. It says, then they scoffed. He's just a carpenter. The son of Mary and the brother of James, etc., etc. He's just a carpenter. Their astonishment has immediately been replaced by familiarity. Their astonishment has immediately been replaced by familiarity, and their familiarity causes them not to recognize who Jesus really is. Watch this. Their, their familiarity causes them to mislabel the Messiah. He's not the Christ. He's just a carpenter. He's not the son of the living God. I know his dad. Me and old Joseph, we used to play softball together. I know that kid. He built me a table in high school. Familiarity with the anointing of God, no matter the circumstance, places self-imposed limitations upon our ability to receive from God. We're talking about real stuff here. Imagine, imagine God's power is like a garden hose. You know, the water just comes out. As soon as you turn on the spigot, the water just comes out. But what happens when you and I get too casual about the things of God, when we fail to place a, the priority on God, on his kingdom, on his power, on his spirit, on his word, when we fail to prioritize these things, we kink the hose. Familiarity with the anointing of God, with people who function in the anointing of God, no matter the circumstance, no matter how it strikes you, no matter how you started out amazed like these folks. Maybe you started out skeptical. Regardless, familiarity with God's anointing places self-imposed limitations on our ability to receive from him. And you see it clearly demonstrated in this passage. How many of us have missed out on God's power because we just treated it way too casually. Yeah. 
Notice they, at the end of this verse, it says they take offense at him. The, the New Living Translation says they were deeply offended at him and they refused to believe. I'm going to talk more about that in just a second, but I want to, I want to look at verse 4 because in verse 4, Jesus gives us a clue as to how familiarity happens. Are you ready for this? Verse 4, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. Jesus tells us exactly how familiarity happens. The clue that he gives helped me years ago to settle a conflict that I had within my own heart around a statement that I grew up hearing. Maybe you heard this statement as I did growing up. Familiarity breeds contempt. Anybody heard that statement before? I remember it was Dr. Mike Murdoch was the person I first heard say it. Some of you might know who that is. From the moment I heard that statement, I absolutely hated it. I was like, this is trash. I don't believe it. I thought, wait a minute, familiarity breeds contempt? You mean that the closer I get to somebody, the more I'm not going to like them? I thought, that doesn't work. No, 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 that can't be true. I'll never forget this as long as I live. I was on my lawnmower. I was mowing my lawn. I was coming up the side hill of my house, and I was talking out loud to God. If anybody saw me, they would have thought I was absolutely lost my mind because I was just sitting there on my mower talking. And I was talking to the Lord, and I'm like, this can't be true. This statement of familiarity breeds contempt. It can't be true. What about Peter and James and John? They were very familiar with Jesus. They were very close to Jesus. And then I read this scripture, and it all clicked one day. Oh, I see. Jesus said that a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. Honor is the key to helping you to stay free from an attitude of familiarity. You want to take some notes, write this one down. Proximity without honor leads to familiarity. Proximity without honor leads to familiarity. Why was the crowd offended with Jesus? They were close to him, and in getting close to him, they became offended with his power because they didn't know how to honor who he was. Proximity without honor leads to familiarity. But here's the good news. Proximity with honor leads to intimacy. Proximity without honor leads to familiarity, but proximity with honor leads to intimacy. I can be close to God's anointing without getting too casual. I can have regular experiences with God's power so long as I remember it's his power and not mine. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but it's a fool who despises his wisdom. The fool is the one who says, this is my show. This is my power. 
This is my deal. I'm in charge. I'm the boss. I'm the king of the the castle. Like Fred Flintstone said, I'm the king of this cave. You see, the minute you and I take that posture of over-casualness and over-familiarity with the things of God is the minute we decide we get to take control and his power begins to diminish in our lives. The kink is fully set in to the hose. The fear of the Lord will allow, allow his power to flow in me, but familiarity towards the Lord and towards the things of God will cause it to stop. Let's look at the progression. Let's look at the, this downward spiral that we're observing. Are you still with me this morning? Let's look at this downward spiral. Jesus is teaching them, and, and they're experiencing his miraculous power. We saw it right at the beginning. So much so that they're blown away. They're just knocked off their axis, you know? They're just pew, tilt. The crowd is caught off guard, and their astonishment turns to familiarity. And Jesus says that the reason that happened is because they don't know how to honor. So then what is honor? What is honor? If if you want to have God's power from above, remember that's the, the title of this series, that's what we're talking about. If you want God's power from above, then you're going to have to learn the principle of honor. What is honor? Someday I'm going to write a book about this. I've been talking about it for eight years. It's coming though, promise. Maybe after my kids go to high, go to high school or college or something, I, maybe, I don't know, we'll see. What is honor? The Greek definition for this word honor in this verse is the word value or price. Our honor for a person or for a thing is expressed in how much we value that person or that thing. It's the price. Most people, well, I don't want to say most people, but a lot of people, the most valuable thing that they possess is their home. It's the biggest expense you'll ever have most, for most folks. Their home, especially right now. <laughs> Very expensive. <laughs> Real estate, man, gosh. Might be the most valuable thing that you ever possess is your home. My question is, do you treat it like the most valuable thing that you will ever possess? A lot of people spend a lot of money to buy a house and they don't pick up their underwear off the floor. A lot of people, did you say, what's the problem? It's awesome. It's awesome. That is awesome. That is so great. A lot of people, a lot of people spend a lot of money to buy a house and then they let the roof leak They don't cut the grass. God bless, there's a person in my neighborhood on my street doesn't cut their grass. Frustrates the dickens out of me because I got to look at it every day. How much honor are we giving to the things that we say we value? You see, in this area of life, our words often 
often do not line up with our actions. I'm getting to the place, I'm 40 years old in my life, I'm getting to the place where I'm tired of lip service. Don't need it, don't want it, don't care. How much do we value God? How much do we value his word? How much do we value his power? Enough to change? What's the result? Getting ready to, getting ready to come to a close. Y'all with me? All right, stay with me. Just another couple minutes. What is the result? They become offended. They become offended. I'm telling you, offense is never very far away when there's no honor. Offense is close by. All right, come on now. Offense is close by when there's no honor. Oh, but you don't understand, Pastor. They let me down. How many of you, how many of you, this could be a fun experiment. How many of you have been let down by a leader? Well done. What happens when you're let down by a leader? There's a temptation to dishonor. There's a temptation to dishonor. He let me down. She let me down. They failed me. Of course they did. They're people. That's what they do. People fail all the time. What if you flip the script because you recognize that when dishonor is trying to get into your life, it's always a precursor to some offense that's just waiting around the next corner? What happens when, when the power of God is so strongly moving in a person's life and it frustrates me, it knocks me off course, I'm surprised by it, I'm taken out by it, I don't understand why, given that temptation to dishonor. And if I follow it, I'll become offended. Do you know what it means to be offended? I know I'm throwing a lot at you this morning. It's really good for you, though. Every time something squirrely happens to your flesh, it's good for you. Just take your medicine, right? You know what it means to be offended? We get our English word, scandal, from the Greek word offense or, what, or offended. It's the Greek word scandalon. You know what it means? It means the trigger or bait of a trap. You ever saw, you ever see one of those, one of those traps like old school traps like they used to have that would, that would trap like a squirrel or something and it's like a, a heavy box and there's a little stick holding that box up and usually there's some kind of little piece of food or something attached to that little stick holding that box up. That little stick is offense. That's the actual literal Greek definition for the word scandalon is a stick that is the trigger of a trap. And so here you come, you little raccoon, fully dishonoring 
and you found this trap called intense uh, offense and it looks so enticing to you. And here you come crawling up to the track. That was, that was pretty good, wasn't it? Sometimes I scare myself. Here you come up to the trap. Boy, that bait looks tasty. Oh, I've just You don't understand, Pastor. I just had an experience that knocked me off course. God showed up in my life in a way that I didn't expect him to. It doesn't fit my mold. It bothers me. I'm a little agitated by it. And so I've decided not to honor God. And here's this juicy little bit of offense in front of me. Problem is, if you grab it, you're the one trapped now. The new living of this verse, verse five says, because of their unbelief, he could do no mighty works, no miracles among them, except to place his hand on a few sick people and heal them. I want to submit to you this morning that when you are offended, it becomes impossible to believe. So many people, they struggle and they wonder, why isn't it working? I've prayed, I've, I've been diligent, I've read the word, I've done, I've done all these things that the Bible tells me to do in order to receive from God, and it, it's just not working, Pastor. What's the problem? I say, are you offended? Because offense creates a scenario in which I believe it is impossible to believe God. Unbelief is the spiritual and mental condition of the person who's offended. The problem is we're in a generation of people right now who love to be perpetually offended. I was talking to a person this week who had a challenge in their life and this person told me so and so, I have so many different people who are, and this is the exact language used, who are outraged on my behalf. Outraged on my behalf. That is demonic. We do not understand that that type of thing has created a kink in the hose that is stopping God's power from flowing in our lives. Here's what I want you to see. Nobody simply starts at unbelief. Nobody just simply refuses to believe God. Even an unbeliever, I'm convinced of this, even an unbeliever, it may start as doubt, it may start as offense, it may, I mean, if you've ever tried to witness to someone, especially if they were struggling internally, you'll find out pretty quick that a lot of times people want to believe God, but there's this stumbling block in their life. There's some issue that they're facing, and you got to go back and find out, hey, what's the issue? In this case, they started astonished, and they ended offended, and they couldn't believe. No one simply refuses to believe God and starts that unbelief. They always have help from the enemy. Always. The Bible says that the God of this world has blinded people's eyes from receiving the truth 
Maybe you expected God's power to flow in your life and didn't happen the way you thought it would. Maybe this morning you even tried to pray and the prayer didn't seem to be answered the way you thought it should. Maybe you grew up, like one of the people I was talking with this week, maybe you grew up in a, in a situation, in an experience where you were taught not to believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. I want, with all my heart this morning, to give us an opportunity to come before the Lord with repentant hearts and say, Lord, I don't want to be like the multitudes in Nazareth who refuse to believe. I don't want, Lord, I do not want to be the man, the woman who was offended at your word, who was offended at your power. This morning, Lord, I want to believe. And I'm going to come to the table not assuming that I'm right, but assuming that I've still got a lot to learn, Lord. I'm going to come to the table humble this morning. I'm going to repent. And I'm going to ask you, Father, to remove any kinks in the hose, anything anywhere that would block me from receiving your power and having your power work in my life. No matter what your background is, no matter where you came from, no matter what got you to this moment this morning, I believe there's an opportunity for you and I to come to the Lord, to repent if needed, and I'm going to suggest that it's needed. Hey, Pastor, I don't know if I really need to repent. Have, have, you, have you raised any dead people this past week? No? Okay, good. Me neither. Let's all repent together. The Bible says all of us fall short of the glory of God. If his glory is not operating in my life perpetually, then I've got something to repent of. Maybe I didn't prioritize him this week the way I should. And it's not, a, it's not a competition. This isn't works. This isn't works-based religion. I'm not trying to earn my way to heaven. I'm just trying to become a refined person that God's power can flow through. If that's you and you say, I want to get real with God tonight, would you stand to your feet? Say, man, I, I want to I receive God's best. I want the power of his spirit to flow in me. you're standing to your feet, I want you to close your eyes and bow your head. I want to pray over you this morning. Thanks again for listening to the Hope Church podcast. Our church exists to see people from all walks of life know Jesus, connect and grow, discover their purpose, and make a difference in this world. If you would like to connect with us further, or if you need prayer or assistance, please visit us at hopeboon.com, where Jesus loves you, we love you, and your life counts.